I'm the Property Funder, better known as Michael Dean, and this is the Property Funder podcast. I'm a successful entrepreneur, investor, NED and advisor. As co-founder of Avermore Capital, I'm best known for having financed over a billion pounds of property developments and investments by value during my career so far. During my time in business, I've come across an incredibly broad spectrum of successful people all with their own unique experiences working in a variety of industries. I want to speak to these people and learn more about them. I'm not looking to have the world's biggest podcast, so if just one person benefits from what my guests have to say, then that to me would look like success. And if you are that one person, then you should probably not tell anyone about this. Guy. Welcome to the Property Funder podcast. Um, just tell us your full name, the name of your business, and uh, what your business does, please. Uh, hi, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, my name's Guy Harrington. I'm the uh, chief exec and founder of Glenhawk Group. Uh, we are uh, predominantly a bridge lender, and we've been going around five years now. Um, I started Glenhawk uh, due to my frustration in the in the bridging space, uh, being a borrower myself and a and a former property developer. And wanting to find a, a business with, or wanting to find a borrower with ethics, values, and someone who really builds relationships with, uh, with the borrower. So um, fast forward five years and several macro and micro uh, economic uh, ups and downs along the way, and uh, and here we are now. So guy, I know that you you haven't been in the lending space originally you know you didn't start there as a graduate or or you know as a, a as a, as your first job just talk us through the steps that you needed to take to get here um and you obviously you mentioned that you're a developer a property developer but i i my understanding is that you have some you've had some other uh there have been some other steps in your career journey as well and that there's quite a lot of entrepreneurship that has has gone on in in the wake and this is just another business in in i said just another business but this is yet another business in a string of uh, successful entrepreneurial ventures. Yeah, I mean, um, I won't mask it up. There's been some uh, some failed ones, of course, but I mean, who who hasn't in, <laughs> if they've had a, a varied journey? Uh, however, broadly, if we go back to university um, many many moons ago, I studied commercial property management. I did that out of a pure interest in property. Um, I'm not totally sure where I got that passion or excitement from. Uh, I just always liked it. You know, it's a cliche, but I enjoyed playing Monopoly when I was younger and uh, it, it rolled on and uh, and I wanted to do it at university. University didn't work out for me. I'm not, I wasn't particularly academic at the time, didn't enjoy the routine of education. Uh, so uh, me being me at the time, I looked at ways I could, you know, make money uh, back in those days. Uh, one way I found out was I had quite a that passion or excitement for tech and mobile phones. And back then you had uh, the Nokia slide phone was all the rage, Nokia 8210. Uh, so I went to my local mobile phone shop and said, listen, do you sell into the university? And they said, well, not really, because we're too far out of town. And I said, well, how about you give me some handsets and I'll go into town, sell them on sale or return. 
And they went, well, okay, yeah, we trust you, go on, built a relationship with them, built up a bit of, bit, bit of money doing that, uh, was thinking, well, it'd be quite nice to go to property. And Sheffield, being Sheffield and Derby, being Derby at the time where I'm from, property was very, very cheap uh, back then, uh, 25, 27,000 for a property. So that's pretty much how I started the journey on property, um, quite, quite an early age by building out a bit of revenue through the phone sales and then expanded that into a smallish portfolio at the time. And then I segued off and um, ended up getting my only, I suppose, PAYE job as such uh, with a chap in Windsor. Um, and that was my move down to London ultimately. And that was exporting supercars to Asia. Uh, so right hand drive cars wow. to Singapore and Thailand and Indonesia, because obviously they drive on the same side of the road and they're right hand drive cars. And it was very efficient for people to import those cars uh, essentially tax-free uh, from the UK without paying huge costs of purchasing in the home ground. So that I was there for two or three years working with Raj, um, really, really great guy. And then after that, the property bug got me again, uh, moved into London. Um, I focused on Southwest London just as an area I'd always enjoyed visiting as a child. Uh, and I sort of felt like I knew it and uh, approached some estate agents and I said do you have investors that are looking for property and uh, one can I help them and two can you introduce me to them and they introduced me to two or three individuals who were developing that area uh, got on very well and uh, started off in a quasi project management role sourcing role um, and almost the whole stack of the of the development opportunity and I think for five, six years, uh, ended up doing tens of properties in that area, ranging from two bed ground floor apartments in the Sands End area near Imperial Wharf uh, to the Peterborough Estate doing large houses with uh, extremely large basement digs. Um, so quite a, a varied uh, selection of property. And more towards the end of my time there, I began co-investing, putting my equity to work and, um, and developing some of my own deals as well. And then on the back of that, we were also borrowing. Uh, so I was experiencing what it was like to be a bridge borrower. And uh, at the time, there were very onerous fees. There were a lot of loan-to-own lending in the bridge lending space. And yeah, there's still some operators like that now. But luckily, with firms like Ada Moore and ourselves, that's you know starting to disappear. Um, I thought we can improve this. So I went to the main equity investor I had at the time and said, hey, we're borrowing here. We're doing this. We're doing that. I think we can do it slightly differently. And very fortunately, he backed me. I put some investment into the business. And um, yeah, we got the lender going. But um, going back to your question, it was very much based off that experience of being a borrower and being, you know, what I want. So I thought, well, I can create the perfect lender. Clearly, there's no such thing as perfect. Uh, you can get close and try. But um, I think with Glenhawk, that was always the aim. And as I say, we've had a lot of challenges over the last five years as, as we both have in our respective businesses um however we're still standing still learning and um and still growing so uh yeah that's the short story of uh, how i ended up here so so i guess it's a yet another entrepreneurial story of someone scratching their own itch and i think something that i can identify with myself albeit from a slightly different standpoint so you know in, in our in our case um i was doing a bit of advisory work uh for some developers our family office was fully invested at the time and so I had a bit of time on my hands and I could see that there was a there was clearly a, a lack of provision of suitably priced suitable leverage lending for entrepreneurial property people essentially and um, 
you know, I think that I guess we've we've come about it from slightly different angles, but ultimately it, it's it's the same same sort of theme, which is we've both seen uh, issues with uh, issues with the, the the lending space, and we've taken the opportunity to firstly deploy our skills, and secondly, at least for mine and Zahair's case, we were also able to deploy the capital that we were otherwise deploying directly into property into lending. And we've both been able to, as in you and I, we've both been able to uh, build out operating lending platforms on, on the back of it uh, and, and and try to impact the maximum number of people. So um, certainly something that I can associate with. And um, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been quite a quite an impressive rise uh, to date. I mean, how many people are working for you now, Guy, in within within Glenhawk and how many people did you start with? So we started off originally um, just myself and Nick Hilton and Nick was, I mean, you cut him in half and he'll have bridging running through him like a stick of rock. He uh, He's an incredible deal maker and also turned into one of my best friends. Um, so it was just him and myself at the time and out of a little office on Dover Street in Mayfair, we had a 300 square foot space because office space around there is obviously crazy. And then we slowly built the team out. We brought on early people such as Annabelle, uh, uh, Damani, who's our, our, our COO, um, and they've been with us for about five years now. Um, the team, as it stands today in here, we've got, I think we're at 48 at the moment, um, and that's really our foundation now. We've got all of the I think the key C-suite, as you could call it, uh, in place, all of the core operations for our, for our bridging book to run at the rate it's running at the moment, which is, which is quite strong. Um, but it also means as we scale out our regulated mortgage platform, our homeowner products over the next six, seven months, and we start to load those into the market, uh, we don't need to go out and um, and hire any, you know, large, uh, large heads of um, to get this, get this really where we want it to. So I've always been of the mindset, I wanted to build the business, much to the annoyance of our CFO. Um, I always wanted to invest in, uh, uh, in, in, in a larger team, so we have the capacity for you know movements in the market acceleration in demand and also to get the scale i never wanted us just to be a bridge lender i always had this vision of a 10-year plan essentially which we're halfway through of getting to that a billion a year of origination and um by the end of this year or even at the moment we're uh, about 35 percent 40 percent of the way there so yeah it's it's very easy i think in life to want to rush i think when you're entrepreneurial you like the natural rush and you always want to hit targets and get over hurdles. Um, but I'm a big sucker for, you know, I wouldn't say not enjoying the journey, but almost going, let's get there, let's get there. And you look back and go, hmm, oh, we got here now. Like, uh, I should have enjoyed the journey along the way. And um, certainly one of my negatives and certainly a point I, I really, really want to improve on is, um, you know, just soaking up the day, enjoying the bad days as much as you enjoy the good days. So, um, yeah, a bit philosophical, but um, no, that's no. how I feel. No, I don't think you should apologise for that. I think ultimately, um, the the joy is in the journey, isn't it? Uh, I think it's as someone who's, you know, I've been doing a lot of self reflection of late, and I certainly feel like at the moment, when you when you reach when you reach the sort of the top of the mountain, so to speak, and you you sort of look around and go, oh oh, is this it? And I think there's an there's every time you you achieve one of these these goals that you project on yourself, you know, we tell ourselves these myths that, well, it, my life will be so much better when I do this and when I do that. And I think that once you achieve these mythical goals that you set out for yourself, 
most of the time what you experience is I think a sense of emptiness and uh, uh, which I think is kind of what you're talking about and actually the the the, the greatest joy is in the is, is in the journey and I think that you know the, the the greatest happiness comes from the anticipation of 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 the thing that comes next rather than the actual thing yeah. um so i think so i think you you're, you're absolutely onto the the right note there um I mean, you talked about i'm talking about enjoying the bad days um you mentioned that you had some failed ventures um what did what did you learn from those ventures that failed i mean what specifically did you think was um the the things that you still take with you that that matter to you today yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think one of the key things, and like yourself, I've been trying to do a lot of reflection recently, it's certainly the resilience of being able to go, okay, that didn't work. You're far better to have tried and failed than to not try and wonder if it had worked. And that's my philosophy. I'd, I'd rather give it a shot, put my all into it, financial risk into it, where it's an investment or whatever it might be, and if it doesn't work out, you know what? I've learned from it. And it's it's a great saying I saw once somewhere online. I'm not I wasn't wise enough to come up with it, but you either win or learn in life. You never lose. You always learn from your losses. And if you don't, well, you're an idiot, to be honest. You need to learn um, from, from your mistakes. You wins, really. You don't learn much from those. You yes, yeah, somehow it works. And to a relative degree, we're all winging it to, 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 to an amount. But it's those losses where you can go, yeah, you know, build my resilience, get on with it. What did I learn from it? I'm not going to do that again. And it's ultimately those constant setbacks that, you know, cr- create you and give you that grit and determination to keep going and knowing that, yeah, life's great today, but tomorrow it might not be. So another good saying I like to live by is, um, is your day going great? Good, it'll soon change. If your day's going bad, good, it'll soon change. So your luck can swing very quickly. And when it comes to investments, that's the same. You know, you're not going to win them all. You're going to have some setbacks, but push through it and um, don't get too down about it. And it's hard at the time because nobody likes being on the back foot, but um, just got to get knocked down and get back on the horse again. Uh, and and it, what would you say was the, the number one thing that you learned from a from a business failure? Or, you know, it, it could even be something something that didn't go well within Glenhawk, for example, but is, is there one thing that you, you would say, right, actually, that was a really valuable lesson that I learned uh, in, in that moment? Yeah, the, there's a lot of things, actually. There was, um, actually, more recently, I had a venture I invested in externally and put a reasonable amount of capital into it. And I didn't know the market. I thought I knew the market. And I'd employed people who did know the market. And I was relying on their advice, their thoughts, and which were all very valid. But I think when you're when you're investing into a business, you really need to get under the skin of that business and fully dedicate the time to understand all the dynamics of it. I was trying to go into a new market and go, right, I can do this. I'm going to take what I've done in Glenhawk in terms of the team, the passion, the excitement, the how I can raise funding, and I'm going to put it into that space. What I totally underestimated was the market dynamics and how deep it went so my number one lesson from that was stick to what you know uh, unless you're a minority in a in a platform where you don't have to have much input uh and just stick to real estate finance um lending and anything within those spaces so it was a tough lesson um but really i should have done more research into the target market mm. 
um, than just diving like I did. But I've done it before. I've dived into markets I didn't know, and it's worked out on the successful businesses I'm involved in. But in that case, um, yeah, should have dug a little bit deeper. Research. Well, I guess I guess talking about diving into markets that you didn't know that well, I suppose uh, when you set up Glenhawk, much in the same way when we set up Avonmore, presumably, you, you know, you had a whole whole suite of things to learn, uh, you know, because if you've never if you've never been a lender before, mm. how do you know how do you know how to lend? How do you know what to do? I and mean, how how did you how did you work it out? I mean, obviously, we don't need a, a full lesson on how to read an LMA <laughs> document, but how how, yeah. how did you? How, you know, talk us through the steps that you need to go through, you know, at a high level to, mm. to, to enable you to to write that first loan, because um, someone might be sat here going, what, you were, you know, you're a project manager and property developer of some mm. houses and houses mm. and flats in Chelsea. And next thing mm. you know, you're, mm. you know, you're a, you know, billion a year lender. What's the, mm. uh, you know, yeah. what, how does one get from one to the other? Yeah, no, no. Clearly, there was there, was, there were a lot of steps involved, but a, but a short run through would be bringing Nick on in in the early days with his vast experience of bridging helped hugely, and bringing a lady called Annabelle on um, early days with her experience. She used to be a mortgage broker was great. So from an operations and lending perspective, we had the administrative administrative functions in there. So that was all pre-baked in. So I was learning from them, but also I'd had my experience of being a borrower, so I could sit from the borrower side. Uh, but I just didn't understand it from the lending side. So early days, we were pretty much going out there going, right, let's lend. Uh, and we were lending the investor's equity off the balance sheet to build the loan book up. So we were lending at, I think, 0.5 a month we were doing and just trying to do an Amazon where you flood the market with, with cheap items, build up your market share and then raise your rates. And uh, historically, that that works. It doesn't really work in the market now, but it, it did back then. And in my own knowledge, it was really jumping at the deep end. I had to learn quickly. In many cases, I had to learn on the job. Um, clearly met some great people like yourself, which uh, I've learned from over the years from, from your historic lending experience. But there were certainly times when I was sat there and something would come up in conversation. And I'm not afraid to do this. When I'm, when I'm in a meeting and someone says something and I don't understand, I'll just say, sorry, I don't understand. Tell me it again. Talk to me like a, a, a child or a or a golden retriever. I I just I just want to get to the basics. And in many of those meetings, it really breaks the ice. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, all right, let me just break that down for you. Especially when you're dealing with lawyers, because lawyers love to you know elaborate and fluff things up. Just give me the basics. So adopting that approach of naivety and going, well, I don't really know what I'm doing here. That certainly helps. But also, I had the passion for property and the passion to build the business. So I was I was mopping everything up. But there were meetings I was in where, yeah, they'd mentioned an LMA and I'd go, what on earth is that? (laughs) Or when we had our first approach for senior debt funding, which ironically was via a message on LinkedIn from Shawbrook. And we ended up borrowing about 60 million off those guys pretty quickly in the early days. They'd sent me a message, a great guy called Jake Francis, who's um, a fantastic chap in the bridging market. He's gone off and set his own lender up now. Um, He said, would you like a funding line? And to be honest, when I got that message, I thought, Mm, do we? How, how on earth does that work? <laughs> and then, uh, then I got into the whole process of understanding how it's essentially back leverage. And then, you know, you start to, as you know, for well, Mike, in life, when you've got something you enjoy and you're passionate about, you learn it so much easier. It's like when you're a kid at school and you're being taught math. Well, personally, I was like, oh, God, I hate this. Whereas now I'm, I can do math really easily. And uh, I was crapping it at school. But when I'm applying it to something I enjoy, it's like bang, 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 gross net, LTV, whatever you want, I can do it pretty quickly. So yeah, coming back to your core question, um, a bit of winging it, 
a bit of having the right team and certainly just having that passion to go, I'm enjoying this, let's grow it and mop up all the knowledge I can from everybody I meet. And certainly in this space, there were a lot of good people that helped me get to where I am today. Um, and then on the next part of the journey, I'm, I'm learning all the time. So, yeah, constant yeah, I, lessons. I, I love I love that that willingness to admit when you don't know something, because I think that that is actually very disarming and uh and and quite charming and people and people are in they find that quite endearing and they're more likely to be drawn to you in that in that sort of situation mm. if you had to boil it down what do you think your you know kind of the secret of glenn hawk's success has been um it might not be one thing it might be a you know a handful of things um i mean you know i, I can venture a guess but i mean why you know we we obviously want to hear it from the main man himself yeah i think you know it's i always think running a business or starting a business there's no one you know magic sprinkle or secret source of as to why it works it's it's like a mixing deck on like a dj's pioneer set you've you've got all these knobs and dials and you're turning them you're tweaking them you're constantly adjusting trying to get the track and sync absolutely perfect that's probably one of the best analogies that i can think of as to uh, as to how this has worked so well but i think a great equity partner at the start he helped hugely and is still backing us today, incredibly supportive and also a really good friend of mine uh, that helped hiring the best in the sector. And by doing by doing that, you also need to have a brand and a culture and an ethos which people can gravitate to. That ultimately, they have to believe in me. I have to be selling the whole time, whether it's, you know, raising funding, getting great people into the business, trying to get deals done with intermediaries. You're constantly selling. So, so being good at sales um and and getting people to buy into the vision was a big part of it and also i think treating people well because you know you i know you treat your team exceptionally well michael and have a great staff retention rate and it's it's all about getting them to buy into the it's a real cliche but the vision the passion the excitement to hey we're on this journey come and be a part of it and grow and i think when you factor that all in and you treat your team like humans they're they're the same as you everybody's equal you know, I want to help people grow personally, professionally, financially, whether they're in here or they're a borrower. Um, with that mindset, we've retained great people. We've grown a very passionate team. And I think now we've got that platform that allows us to grow. So, yeah, you've got three or four things there um, that I think have really helped. Um, and then you could dig into, you know, at the brand. I wanted to create something that really stood out in the marketplace as a as a non-bank lender as opposed to a challenger bank or a brokerage or I really wanted to define it so yeah there's a lot there's probably you know a list of 20 30 things um probably hundreds over the years that <laughs> that it's all added up to be really you know I'd like to add a few things to that as well and you touched on you touched them and right at the beginning you mentioned ethics and values and also mm. you talked about building trust and uh, you know uh, as as you know well but maybe some of the audience won't know that well the the bridge and development lending space i suppose more broadly the the, the residential mortgage space as well it's ultimately reliant on intermediaries and particularly in the specialist finance space so whether that's buy to let whether that's bridging whether that's development a lot of brokers have got a client who you have to work who, who they work with sometimes for as long as much as 20 years and when you're a new lender ultimately a broker is really un, really going to be reluctant to give you business unless they unless they really trust you because if 
it goes wrong if you if a broker is putting a client into a lender um that they haven't worked with before and it goes badly it runs the risk of them losing potentially 10 15 20 years worth of business subsequent to that um because it it will have eroded trust in them and so as a consequence of that you have to earn and win the broker's trust to give you the chance to do that deal um and i think that you know that those i suppose those um standards that you that you live by and you operate by i would say uh, i suppose much in the same way as, as for us as well at avonmore uh, those those are absolutely crucial um and you know when someone calls into question any of those as, as far as i'm concerned as far as i'm concerned with avonmore or any of the other businesses i'm involved in um it hurts me quite personally because i think mm. that it, for me it, it's it's essential that you project that uh, as well as you can and i think so, that's certainly certainly something that i can see uh, both from what you say here but also knowing you outside of this conversation uh, that's something that you live by and you do very well mm. and that was you know i'm sure you found it in the early days as well it's trying to get that trust from the intermediary network that you're going to deliver was hard you know as you say there's 20 years of relationships on the line sometimes and to build up that support and strength uh, takes time and uh, we were saying this late last year that I think only now after nearly five years we're starting to see that flow of you know really solid brokers going yeah we'll just chuck it with you chuck it with you and it's just like right you'll deliver you'll deliver and if there's a problem we can solve it but in the early days yeah I agree it's uh, it's like trying to I don't know trying with a, a new partner in life it just it's a relationship and it builds and builds and builds and it gets better and better so uh, yeah we, we we certainly saw that and um slowly starting to see the benefits i think you i think you must have got it much quicker than us i think it, it took me about five years to work it out it's when you have the when you know you've got the best product in the market and you, yet you still can't wrestle it away from lender a b or c uh, uh and you're like well, what's going on here and mm. and then and then it dawns on you it's like well yeah but they've we we keep giving the deal to them yes that yes you might be cheaper yes you might have often more leverage but they never let us down and we, mm. we can't have you that yeah and you and when you get that feedback you know yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Now, now, and then it's like it's a bit of a light bulb bulb moment. But I think you've probably had that much quicker than us. So, uh, so congratulations on that front. Well, I don't know. Swings and roundabouts, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you think the biggest challenge you experience is as a as a business owner? Oh, as a business owner, biggest challenge. Or as a, or as a business leader, yeah. even whether yeah, owner, I, I owner think, or leader. I think for me personally, it's the the macro environment. And I know I can't control it. Nothing I can do will change, you know, rates going up, inflation, COVID, Ukraine, whatever. Um, but it, I, it's the uncertainty, I think. You're trying to operate this train down a track and you're going, right, here we go. This is my route. I'm on it. You're on the rails. I want to keep it steady. I want to. I'm a big train enthusiast, so hence the analogy. But <laughs> you want to just keep going to the next station, check in, get your passengers, move on. Whereas someone's trying to chuck wood on the line, there's a tree down, there's leaves, you know, it's it's all these constant setbacks that you, you can't prevent. And um, I think for me, that's that's the hardest part, because it, within the business, I can control all these levers. I try to control all these levers, the team, the people, the funding, you know, the external facing of the brand. And yes, I can control that. But when it comes to things outside of my control, it's, you know, it's a real gut punch sometimes because you go, oh, come on, I'm trying my absolute best here. And then 
you know, inflation today, what, 22nd of March, they say it's gone up to, what, 10.4 annualised or something. And looks like rates are going to march back up again, which is painful and painful for borrowers, painful for us a bit. And um, you think, well, all right, you've got to accept that it's out of my control, whereas I'm very much, when you do run a business, you need to be in control of it. And it's just natural to be like that. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge. And um, certainly in a market like ours, which is intensely competitive. I mean, I heard of a new lender starting up the other day and I joked with them and said, oh, why? Like this is this is an incredibly hard market to operate in. There's 250 odd bridge lenders, There's loads of capital coming into it. There's a finite pool of borrowers. Um, it, why? And they're like, oh, well, it's a good opportunity. And I think mm, it is part of I'm not saying that because I don't want the competition. I think competition is good, right? But uh, I think it's um, it's something I can't control. But hey, one of those things, isn't it? So, well, I, I, well you say one, you say there's uh, one one a new lender i mean it used to be a new lender propping up every week so uh yeah. or, or every every other day it felt like so uh it's an, a yet another one but uh yeah, yeah i think i think that uh well I, I wish them luck i think that they're going to need it as as you mm. say uh it's mm. a difficult market to operate within mm. oh, you, one of the things that i commonly hear back in terms of the biggest challenges is, is actually around is, is actually staff and, and uh, you know dealing with st- uh, managing staff or dealing with staff issues um you know getting the right staff or, or keeping the existing staff happy how how have you found the, the process of building up a team and how do you how do you deal with a difficult uh, a difficult member of staff or someone who doesn't maybe fit the jigsaw so well so i think we've i don't really believe in luck because you make your own right but i think we when, when we started building the business out that core team that we brought in that you know, base of the cake as such, were so strong and they all reflected my, you know, morals and values in life, that when you build the business out, it almost becomes infectious. And then everyone that comes in after that, when they're interviewed or brought in, they reflect the same. So you end up with a business like ours, which is incredibly diverse, you know, racially, sexually. Um, I think we're 50, 51% um, women. Uh, 49% men in the business now and uh, ethnic diversity over 60% which is in our sector you know it's, it's quite hard to get but all we've done is just hire the best people we haven't gone out and gone right let's uh, let's build this you know diversity we've just done it by bringing in the best people um, and certainly that culture that's buying into my dream and my vision and being a part of that is is huge um and it all comes down to things you know how you treat people the benefits we we're still on a three-day week in the office here so monday and friday it's just usually myself and nick here and investing in not just their livelihood but also when they come to work i'm a believer that that the office space should be better than their home they should want to come in and go oh yeah this is nice i really like it so hence we've got this beautiful office on regent street looking onto hamley's we've got loads of light coming in 40 windows, whatever it is. And yeah, it costs us uh, nearly 40 grand a month. But the reality is it's um, it draws people in. They come in for an interview and go, oh, yeah, I like this. I want to be here on the edge of Soho in Mayfair. And you can't really quantify the investment there. You can't really think, well, we got that back because we got them. But you certainly get the office comment a lot of the time, which sounds bizarre. But would you rather be working in a lower ground floor, moldy basement somewhere with carpet tiles coming up or have a space like this. Yes, as a business, 
our CFO is always questioning it's quite expensive, <laughs> um, but we've got a great deal during COVID on it. So that's that's fine. Um, so no, it's a multitude of factors. It's the culture, it's the passion, it's buying into my vision, the place that they're going to work, the flexibility and the benefits and showing people what we're doing, whether it's treating borrowers fairly, whether it's, you know, bringing in some big investors like we've got JP Morgan, we've got NatWest Markets and we've got three American hedge funds, which backers and they're all very, all very big names and all, all very solid and supportive. So again, it's like the key success to a business. It's the multitude of things. But really, the team is, I'd say, the biggest portion of, of what makes this a success. Certainly, it's not me. I just, you know, sit here and wave my arms about and go on podcasts occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but just to, to touch on the point around if if someone doesn't you know because look we'll be kidding ourselves if, if if everyone you hired has has, has lasted the course yeah how yeah. do you how do you approach someone who is maybe not fitting the jigsaw who isn't sure it, it isn't quite the right cultural fit or they aren't pulling their weight for any yeah. reason what, what's your what's your what's your strategy for dealing with those those types of individuals yeah sorry i completely missed that part of the answer that's all right um so that i'm not a big fan of the guy I mean, he's been extremely successful, but I don't think he's a bit of an oddball. But Mark Zuckerberg said years ago, hire fast, fire fast. And at the time, I thought, oh, that's a bit of you know wanky thing to say. It's a bit, you know, bit rude. But I think if you break that down and look at what he's trying to say there, he's essentially saying, you know, hire quickly, work out if they are the right fit. And if they're not, they'll know it, you'll know it. And you've got to, you know, pull the, pull the ripcord and let the parachute go and let them go. And if you are bringing in the right people that understand that's part of the process, then it happens. And we've had situations like that, not many, where they've come in, we've sat down after a month, eight weeks and gone, listen, this isn't working. And they've gone, yeah, it's not working. Right. OK, let's go. Let's move on. I think the more you try and drag it out, the more painful it is for both parties. And you almost need to sit down and have that adult conversation and go, hey, you're not really enjoying this, are you? Listen, it's not working for us there's an element of training and there's an element of growth you can do with people before you're just flogging a dead horse and you're just not you're not going to work it's not going to work for either party I mean I don't want people here who don't want to be here clearly that'll be an absolute nightmare for them and for me I want people who are passionate excited and then the only way you can get that is say buying into the vision and the dream and if they don't fit acting quickly resolving the situation and you know moving on which personally i think is best for both parties um it sounds a harsh way when you hire fast fire fast but the reality is it, it works in in my experience as well and as soon as you get a bad egg you have to get rid of it otherwise it turns you know like a bunch of bananas all of them end up being <laughs> moldy and you can't have that you can't risk it especially when you're when you're trying to scale the business yeah i i have to say that we've I don't want to describe them as toxic people, but you have people who are detrimental to the overall culture, working culture of the business. And if, if they stay in the business for too long, uh, yeah, the, it, it does infect the rest of the team and it makes it makes everything work far less well. Um, and you, you can just see when when that person leaves the company, you can just see everyone just rise up a little bit, mm. um, you know, because these people, they just can't, they, they just, there's like this cloud that hangs over everyone whenever they're in the workplace and yeah. so having having them out of a business is is absolutely paramount and Definitely. and it's not because they're necessarily bad people it's just that no. they're, they're just either not happy in with there's certain aspects of their life they're not happy about 
or, mm. or it, it's a role that they're not suited to and they they yeah. just need to find something that's a bit more suited to their personality yeah completely uh, agree i mean a lot of the time they've been really great people um but it just you know it, it hasn't worked and um i'm still friends with a lot of the people that it hasn't worked out but luckily touchwood we're you know, yeah. we've got we've got a good hit right now finding the right people. <laughs> Maybe because I don't do the interviews anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it might be that. It might be that. But yeah. yeah. Clearly, you you're starting to crack the code, and um, yeah, I, I don't know if I could say that we've done the same, but we've done okay of late as far got, as retention. I think you've got some great people there, even more. It's um, no, you've uh, you've certainly got a good crew there. Uh, I, I I found it quite interesting talking about just talking about people for a second further. You were talking about university and how it didn't work out for you what's your view on university now now that you look back and if someone was if someone who was 16 17 was coming to you and saying look, I'm, I'm thinking about going to going to university what, what do you think what would be your advice to them oh that's a tricky one I mean I'm not a big fan of regrets because at the time it's exactly what you wanted so I don't really believe in being regretful but I'd say, you know, you've got to make your own choices in life. And yeah, take advice from people, think it through, but ultimately it's your decision. And going back now, I'd say for me getting here, not going to uni hasn't been a detriment in any way. And certainly when we employ people here, I don't look at the university they've gone to, whether they went or not, don't care. It's more about what they can deliver going forward. And we get a lot of people coming in that might have the most basic of CVs, but, you know, you see their fire and their passion, their excitement. And we've got an intern at the moment and I'm being absolutely blown away by how good he is. And I think he's going to be an absolute gem as he grows. And he only has about six months experience in property finance and the guy's a genius. already. So I'd say to them, you know, make your own mind up. But the reality is, as an employer, we we don't mind. I'm not you know, looking at it, but it's a good social experience. You know, you make some great friends, which. In fact, I don't have any friends left there from university, but <laughs> at the time you do. Um, and uh, it, it's a life choice and it depends what career you want to go down. Right. I mean, if you want to go down the route where you wing it a little bit like I do, you be a bit like a Dell boy and try and get your way through to getting into a situation like I'm in now. Or you want to go and become a doctor, an architect, a lawyer, you know, all those key jobs that we all we, we need in this country then, yeah, you have to go to, to university. So it depends on your mindset, depends on where you want to go in life. Um, but I don't think it's the be all and end all if you want to end up in something where your personality and your passion can really shine through, as opposed to having that pure, you know, raw knowledge, like a lawyer, like an accountant, like an architect, like a doctor, like a nurse and so on. So, yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say it doesn't matter, to be honest, but that's me. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. The the key benefit I can think of, of uh, I, I had the either the privilege or misfortune, depending on which camp you sit in, of going to, to of attending two different universities to do different two different courses, and the the, la the latter of which en ended up leading leading me into real estate, doing a, a master's in real estate at Reading. the The key benefit for me was not the education, was not the training. I think within a month of 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 being at Cushman and Wakefield, which is where I had my first graduate job I probably learned more than I had in a whole year of master's course so I just don't think that there's that much value that comes from that um, I think the key value that has come from it is actually that the relationships that you get from that and the 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 doors that those people that you rise up with can open for you as you as you prolong your career 
can be really valuable in a very relationship driven industry like real estate or real estate finance. I think on the other hand, if you're in, I think if you're in technology and if you, you can become a very proficient coder and be a very good software engineer without a second, having, having, without setting foot into a university and the relationship building aspects of it are possibly less important. So like you said, I think it, it's very much a horses for courses, but I'm, I'm just interested to, to hear about it, especially given your experience. Mm. Um, we talked about your biggest challenges as a business owner um more generally what what do you see your biggest challenges or threats over the next 18 months you know what's what's over the horizon that you're currently sort of thinking about slightly with some trepidation thinking okay this is something that i'm concerned about and and i'm i need to sort of guard against uh i think that interest rates i mean are my biggest concern um i agree that rates needed to go up to try and tame inflation however clearly as of today's numbers that's not working so maybe they've got to be extremely more aggressive which i don't think they'll be or they've got to find another ways to curb it um which is going to be very hard for them to do but i think in our sector certainly well it's going to affect the broader economy it's the refinancing of large commercial real estate assets that what we're starting to see in the city is they're trying to refinance big blocks. And there's a friend of mine who works at a very well-known lender and he's, he's head of the firm and they lend minimum hundred million pound tickets on prime central assets and their money's, you know, insurance money sits very cheap. And he said to me the other day, they've got a situation on their books at the moment, in fact, a couple of situations where the borrower is trying to refinance out of that asset. They had debt at, it's about 1.1, 1.2 commercial debt. Some of the cheapest commercial debt you can get, 50% leverage. Now the market, Clearly, the rates have gone up. You know, there's a bit of a pinch. The yields aren't there. The occupancy might not be there. And the asset needs a refurb of, let's say, 400, 500 pounds a square foot. Suddenly, they're in a position where they've got to inject at least 40% equity into that asset. One, they can't afford it. Two, they're not going to be able to sell it and get the price they want. Uh, and three, they can't refinance it. So I'm concerned that we're starting to see a perfect storm of uh, correction in the commercial maybe more the large commercial real estate space but we've started to see certainly recently uh refinances or purchases value down uh on a commercial asset because the valuers are protecting their pi which i fully understand and uh pi's had its own issues the last couple of years but also the the yield isn't there and the exit's not there so i'm concerned about that and i think the bank of england have totally missed uh what's brewing there and I think that could have a wider impact across the economy. Yes, of course, you'll get some borrowers that can inject the equity, and that's absolutely fine. Yes, you'll get some that are able to afford the refinance because they've got a high-yielding asset. But I think we're going to start to see, you know, some distress in in the market towards the end of this year. What can we do now as a, as a lender? Clearly, we can restrict our commercial lending. We already do from an LTD perspective. We've, we're predominantly focused on residential. I think the portfolio is about 80% resi and the rest is semi-commercial or commercial. So that's all fine. Uh, and just be a little bit more diligent on, on what we're lending on, which I'm sure like yourselves, coming out of COVID, we opened the taps a little bit and kept kept things building and building. But now we're not up to where we were before. Um, my uh, credit team will help me to say this, but technically we can lend 80% LTV on resi bridging. We can do that all day long. In fact, we can do it even higher if we want. But we're not, and we haven't done one loan at that. It's more of a case of, you know, we have that flexibility there to do it, but we're not going out to market going, bang, look, we can do it. 
purely because I just want to be, you know, a little bit protective about what we what the market's going to bring over the next year. So I think in summary, I don't think we're out the woods yet in terms of uh, uh, how painful these rate rises have been. And I think we've got six months now of a honeymoon period of, yeah, life's great. Days are getting longer. It's light outside. Days are getting warmer. Everyone feels good. Life's good. But something's going to um, going to come up, I think. Um, I don't know how bad it's going to be, but it's certainly going to be a bit of a tremor. Uh, probably, a you know, not a hit like 2008 was, but it'll be a, a bit of a repricing, reconnect, recorrection, uh, which we've all got to... You know, all got to wait for. But I'd be interested to hear your your thoughts, Mike, on what yours, yeah. your uh, concerns are. Well, I think, um, yeah, I, I think for me, it's it's much it's much more on the macro. The macro side is is significant. I think what you're saying is right. I think the the residential market in the UK will hold up for for a couple of reasons. First, I don't think that the UK average UK borrower for their home is particularly highly geared. Uh, we have something like 40% of homeowners don't even have any debt against their home. Um, and I think, and we're also seeing the swap rates now are starting to reflect the fact that everyone can see. I mean, look, the, you're always going to have CPI data when you're in these high high inflationary environments. You are gonna, occasionally going to have a, a little blip back upwards because people have, people have, you know, I think a lot of the contributions for the last set data, today's set data, was from things like restaurants. And of course, restaurants have been absolutely hammered by the increased cost of energy and staffing costs, the fact that you can't get staff. So that's not surprising. And you're just still going to have those things feed through. But so the big things like energy, uh, which is now starting to come down, particularly gas prices, that's going to start to feed in as of April. And we'll start to see that, that come through. Rates are going to have to tail off. Clearly, the it's not sustainable for rates to remain where they are in the in the in the long term and the speed at which i say in the long term but it's i think the speed at which rates have gone up is the thing that's probably caught everyone by surprise it certainly caught me by surprise um mm. and as we've seen in in the states there are not unintended consequences but you're going to start to see um some casualties that that come out of these high interest rate environments which yeah. mean which means that um, things that people didn't expect would happen, and you've got a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, you know the way that they they were taking they were investing their depositors' funds, and obviously with a bit of a with a significant mismatch, and naturally that just ends up uh, that's ended up ended up with the the end of that bank. Mm. In the commercial real estate space, um, it's funny because I'm. I started my training as a as a commercial surveyor. I was a, an investor and developer of commercial uh, commercial real estate through a private equity fund, um, just post Lehman as well. Um, so, and I've been investing in it as we've been investing in it as a family um, up until 2016, and then bought a building again um, in March of last year in in the southeast. Albeit our strategy has always been to buy commercial with the intention to convert it to residential in the medium term and sit on the income while we do that. I bid on a building about 10 days ago. It's in this M25 office market, led to a grade A blue chip tenant. It's not particularly long tenancy remaining, about two and a half, two and three quarter years left on it. But there's a good chance that the tenant would, would probably renew at the end of their tendency. The quoting price is four and a half million pounds. I bid 3.7 million in the first round of bidding, and I was invited to the second round of bids. Uh, I don't think I've been successful in that in that set, subsequent bid. 
but my uh, my view is that the people who have bid at the higher end probably won't perform because they're expecting to get significant amounts of debt on that purchase and it's just not going to play out when i look at commercial property investments that are, and, and i'm looking to buy more of them i'm now assuming that i won't use any debt because the cost of debt is so high margins are really high and the cost of debt's really high and at that bigger ticket you know that sort of aviva type ticket that you're probably talking about uh of 100 million and above you know aviva do smaller tickets than that but that kind of insurance uh, market-based lending even they're still charging sig- significant margins on on their money over base and it's it's it doesn't feel sustainable and i think that there is a bit of a we are sleepwalking into a bit of a crisis uh, yeah. as, as far as the commercial real estate market is concerned. And the thing that's the thing is probably quite worrying, and it's, it's definitely a concern in the US as well. Uh, you know, if you look at a lot of the smaller banks in the US, there's potentially a bit of a crisis about to happen over there, which I think is a bit of a replication of what happened in the early 90s. So it was a bit of a commercial real estate bubble and a commercial real estate banking crisis. I think we could see some of uh, some problems flowing from that. And the downside is that those of us that lend predominantly against residential properties like yourselves, it feeds through into our cost of funds will probably go up as a consequence of that. The margins that we forget the base rate for a second, but the margins that we need to charge are going to are going to be impacted by that as a consequence. And, you know, unfortunately, there, you know, there won't be any free lunches. But if we continue to lend sensibly, as as you and I both appear to be doing, I think we will we will see see out the crisis uh, these crises as they continue to unfold. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and and as you say, it's I think predominantly the cause of what we're seeing now is those aggressive rate rises. Certainly with you know Silicon Valley and a lot of the smaller banks in in the US and even here. I mean we. I think during the because our back book of uh, bridging loans, which is several hundred million now, is linked to Sonia. So clearly, as the rates have gone up, our margin has been eroded on that book. And yeah, some will be going, oh, why didn't they hedge? It's really very hard to hedge a bridging book. And at the time when we could have hedged, it would have cost us several million. The irony is that now that erosion in margin has cost us in the last year probably 2.7 million, I think um like hit like as a loss so being painful um we can afford it because we're well equity backed and we've repriced the book the back book and the front book going forward so you know stability is there and we're we're absolutely fine but certainly there are going to be challenger banks in the uk non-bank lenders with probably larger books than ours that are feeling a lot of pain this year and if you've got a billion of bridging out unhedged and markets move four percent you know broadly that's 40 million quid of margin erosion you're going to have in a year so it's not a nice situation to be in but i think also if we tie this into the facts i think yes we've got the american challenger bank crisis which is brewing but the fed have said okay we'll guarantee all deposits up to 20 trillion which is like you know (laughs) unbelievable so it's a very bizarre situation but i think over here you look at going back to the point about the competitive market I'm seeing challenger banks in the UK lend on a lot of absolute crap, uh, you know, land without planning in an area with, you know, flood, whatever, whatever. They're deploying money like mad because they have to. They've got all these deposits and they're trying to deploy. Is that sensible what they're doing? No. Um, I saw one uh, challenger bank yesterday did a loan to uh, things like a 30 million pound commercial loan 
to a lender who I know of. And I would never even have done that deal in my life. And we're a non-bank lender. Um, so I think, you know, there's issues brewing and a lot of the banks in the UK are backed by private equity firms. And some of them, I think, are going to have to be very careful uh, what their book's going to look like when the market does turn against them. Um, there's going to be a few, I think, concerned people out there, which for us and for yourself, when you've got good credit quality and you're cautious, bad times hit. You can ride it out. But if you've got a few bad assets in there and you're a bank or a non-bank and they're, they're chunky assets, they're going to struggle. So, yeah, I think we may have a bit of that in the UK, but not to the degree the Americans are going to see it as, as we are. For me, I think that the, my, for me, what I see as the biggest challenge is actually a lack of a lack of borrower appetite. So there's just not a big enough marketplace um, for borrowers. And then you probably mm. experience we, we've discussed it privately um, a few weeks ago that there's just so much there's the wall of money that wants to deploy into particularly the bridging and the refurb space hasn't really shrunk particularly since the summer of last year. Um, it's a bit more cautious in the development space, but there are now signs of that starting to warm up again. But if you're a developer right now, if you're particularly if you're a reef, if your traditional business model has been to buy something, refurb it, uh, predominantly using say bridging, and then refinance that onto a buy-to-let loan, that market is understandably, if, if that's been your business model, why would you do, why would you deploy money into the into the current cycle unless you you're you're entirely reliant on on tra- churn and, and trading. It's mm. it's such a difficult market to be to be oper- to be operating in, and yeah. understandably that that puts pressure on on businesses like ours. And then if you if you're a you know fill in the bank fill in the blank challenger bank, um, needing to deploy a billion or two billion or three billion into the specialist finance space, you're going to make some you're going to make some bad loans for sure because mm. you're just pushing the boundaries. Um, yeah. But I think also some of our competitors will find uh, will find themselves in a similar space. And a receiver uh, that I was speaking to not long ago, he said to me, "You're going to we're starting to see a lot of bad lending decisions, particularly in the land on the land side, starting to mm. unwind. Um, mm. Particularly where people have lent against land without planning. The planning system, as I experienced with a different business of mine, is a complete disaster. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're going to. We, I think we could see some interesting." Uh, outcomes there but you well, know. well if you if you look at one we had the other week down in um, a well-known estate in Surrey we were exiting or the, the deal that came to us was exiting a borrower um, and the asset uh, was, was quite interesting but there were two problems one there was a challenger bank who had the debt on it uh, an unregulated bridge loan on it however there was an elderly man living in it and there was a stair lift in it. So to me, it was his main residence. That's a regulated deal. And that's not a line you ever want to stray over for obvious reasons. So they'd lent on a regulated deal in an unreg situation. We They sent us the valuation report that they'd done. Um, we went via a broker. We treated it as a regulated loan. We said, let's, let's try and help out here um, because the old man was moving out and selling it. There's a whole story behind it. And we, we were comfortable. Um, there's, a, there's a sale exit there being where it is in Surrey. And uh, the valuation report, as in we didn't get a full valve report back, but they did a, a, a quick report, came back at about a million less um, on a three and a half million value. So in that, that situation there, you've got two very complex situations. You've got one, if that valuer is a well-known valuer, put that on it, then there's no exit. That, that, that chap's not going to get out of the deal. The challenger bank's not going to get out of the deal, and they've treated it as an unregulated opportunity. So I think when you've got situations like that, um, 
that you know and that's just what i've seen but that's a huge down valuation and um yeah who knows that will go to receivership and they'll end up you know making a loss on that i'm uh, a capital loss i'm fairly certain but don't think anyone anyone's really talking about it but i think with the volume of churn we're seeing here i'm seeing it more and more which is um which is slightly worrying whether that will cause you know contagion in the banking space and the pra like they're trying to do at the moment force through more onerous restrictions hey it could be a good thing but you know it's a bit worrying what they're lending on and i'm i don't want a market crash as much as you like i want the challenger banks to act you know appropriately like we act appropriately but it's um there's certainly some writing appearing on the wall that um concerns me a bit i think some of these changes that they're you know i, th- I think they're, they're looking to put in place these restrictions banking restrictions on on sme lending probably of the wrong time the the time to have done that was probably 12 18 months ago when the yeah. market was running hot now now you're putting a, you're, you're putting restrictions at the time when the market's probably going to need it more mm. is it you know i guess we've been talking we've we've probably spent the last five ten minutes painting rather the negative picture but obviously we we don't want to leave everyone feeling particularly glum are there, are there any reasons to be optimistic any any grounds <laughs> for optimism guy that, that you can see yeah. from your side yeah, you know, you're right, Michael. I mean, we've, we've discussed some good points there and, you know, it's the reality of what we're seeing. But, hey, I think, as you say earlier, inflation is going to ease off. Uh, yes, it, it spiked because of various factors, dry January ending and, you know, all the all the benefits that the pubs and bars got through February and March. Um, but I think, you know, broadly, you look at the economy, the data isn't too bad here. I think Rishi, love him or hate him, is doing you know a good job at trying to stimulate the economy and get it going unemployment is a i believe it's just ticked above a record record low so that's encouraging and you know i think in general there's a lot to be positive about but we've been led for years by the media and i've drawn myself away from that as much as i can but there's a lot of negativity that's forced out us daily um yeah we've covered a bit of it here but, you know, people are still borrowing. This month will be our, our record month of completion. So there's still a lot of activity in the system. People aren't holding back. The banking crisis the other week and ongoing isn't stopping people doing what they're doing. But I think a lot of that has come out the back of COVID. People have gone, well, you know, that was a pretty crap time for all of us. Um, I'm going to go out. I'm going to buy that property. I'm going to buy that car. I'm going to take that holiday, which is probably causing a lot of the inflationary aspect. But in many ways, it's made us all quite stoic just to get on with life. Um, But no, I certainly see positives ahead. And you'd be incredibly naive in life to think that everything's going to go always like that. You know, we're going to have the bumps and hurdles. But compared to, you know, COVID, um, you know, we we, will get through it. We're we're very resilient things, humans. So we'll bounce back and everything will be fine. And um, hey, we're alive, life's short. We've just got to get on with it and uh, try not to complain too much and accept that, yeah, it's a, it's an uncertain environment, but keep smiling, push your way through it and uh, yeah, keep borrowing. <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly would echo, echo those uh, those sentiments for sure. And uh, yeah, definitely if people can keep borrowing, that that would be great. But if they if they choose not to, we, I think we both understand the reasons why they might not. Mm. Um, Obviously, a very, uh, very positive note that you you sort of you, you just put forward there, thankfully. Um, let's talk about positive habits um, and, you know, the positive habits that you're engaged in that support your lifestyle and well-being and ultimately enable you to be the successful entrepreneur that you are. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, 
For me personally, I find uh, in the morning I walk into the office and uh, it's about an hour walk through Hyde Park. And for me, it's a great opportunity to you know get some blood through my body, get a coffee, you know, see the open air and it's just get some fresh air, see the birds. Bit hippie-ish, but yeah, I quite like nature. And um, no matter the weather, I'll do it. So even if it's minus five and pouring with rain or snow, I'll take an umbrella and I'll do it. And I find if I force myself to do it, no matter the weather, I'll I'll always get to work. So walking helps me maintain a positive attitude. Um, surrounding myself with people who, like yourself, outside of this, good friends, um, you know, lift each other up when things might be challenging or certain situations. So surrounding yourself with that positivity certainly helps. And um, I suppose in, in other habits, just, you know, trying to self-improve. So trying to read books. I know we all try, but trying to get the time to do it. I'd love to say I read six a week, but I don't. Um, and just trying to pick out the positives in life. It's um, it's quite easy, as I know we've done here, pick out the negatives, but they're always good talking points. But just try and uh, try and see the bright side mm. of life. And um, for me personally, on a positive I find the biggest motivator I ever have, uh, yeah, it's morbid, is death, is knowing that one day, I'm 36 now, one day in another 60 years, hopefully that 60 years, not next week or tomorrow or now, but um, it, it all ends. And by thinking like that, your mind goes, well, crikey, you know, let's take that risk. Let's take that opportunity. Let's ask that question. Let's push that. Let's go on a podcast with Michael. It's um, it encourages you to to live life more, and also gives you a bizarre euphoria of positivity. So, yeah, there's a few little things there that I try and uh, try and do. Um, and of course, I've got a a young uh, young boy who's year and year and three months now. So, seeing him every day makes me excited and makes me positive and makes me even more driven. So, um, no, there's a lot there, and bizarrely, I went to a Paul McKenna positivity event a few weeks ago. And it was like an audience hypnotization. And uh, it's all of those things that he just drilled into, you know, we all know it, but it's very much about your confidence, your posture, your outlook on life and um, your uh, reinforming in your mind as to how good things are and uh, don't take life for granted. So, yeah, that's my technique. I have to confess, I, I didn't even know Paul McKenna was still was still operating. Uh, uh, that's, I thought he made so a, much money he didn't need to. Yeah, that, that's a that's a real blast from the past. I, I remember, I think my mum had a couple of his VHSs, which I think I want, watched once and fell asleep to. So uh, I think that means it worked. I don't know, but uh, uh, but okay, and that's great. I mean, uh, and any, I mean, you, you you seem to keep yourself reasonably trim. Are you you quite careful about what you eat or you you know you sort of just sort of one of those annoying people who can eat what they want and, and you just get away with it uh i'd say my bmi is quite high at the moment i mean i'm six foot three and i'm probably at the higher end of bmi but i tend to you know i, I do eat crap um last night my wife was out so i just had a bone daddy's for delivery and had some ribs and things and i haven't had breakfast today and it's nearly lunchtime so yeah i just I, you know, does, does that count as intermittent up. fasting then <laughs> <laughs> I've got uh, yeah I'd say uh, maybe in summary I've got a I've got a good disposition for for you know it not loading on the weight but I do like a beer now and then I'm not reliant on it but I will have something now and then um but yeah the walking helps a lot if I wasn't doing the walking in the morning certainly I'd be ballooning bigger than I am now but uh I do go to the gym occasionally but I'm really bad at it I just I go do a few minutes and you know yeah you know, like the other day I was there on one of these Jacob's ladders and I didn't realise that, I don't know why, first time I've been on it, 
the, the higher you go, the, the faster it goes. And I'm now like a hamster, <laughs> absolutely burning myself out, looking like a complete idiot. And then I went online, I'm like, how the hell do you use this thing? And it's like, oh, you can go slower and you won't fall off the bottom of the ladder. And I was like, oh, God, if only I'd done that. So, yeah, usually I'm making a wally of myself there when I do go. But um, I certainly need to look after myself more. I don't do it enough. I'd love to say I get up early and I do it. But, no, the walking's good enough for me. And, uh, yeah, standing and walking around the office quite a lot helps. So, yeah, that's enough for now. I think there's been a lot of studies showing the the benefits of of getting out walking, getting in nature, and uh, you know the, the combination of the blood flow and the air and the oxygen yeah. and uh, and the sunlight, particularly early in the morning. I imagine uh, without without knowing it intuitively, it's uh, uh, it's still working quite well for you. Well, um, it's um, it's actually I read a book uh, called The Japanese Art of Forest Bathing, and uh, it's called Shinrin Yoku, which stands for forest bathing. And it's proven, the Japanese did a huge study, that if you take someone out of a city and plonk them in a woodland and sit them there for two hours, you've got to be quite patient, obviously, sit there, your blood pressure drops by 35%. And it's proven, absolutely proven, it drops by 35%. By being in a green surrounding and looking at the colour green, it makes you more relaxed. And looking at leaves, trees, even if they're fake, like I've got some plants here and these are fake bamboo, it calms you and relaxes you. It's just in the human mind. And it's a great book. It's on Amazon. It's only like 80 pages if you don't fall asleep reading it. But it's a study on how the Japanese have perfected this art and anyone can do it. So, yeah, I'm a big advocate of getting outdoors. Well, we, we, we've we got a question lined up to talk about books that you recommend, but that's uh, uh, we'll, we'll use that one as a, as a bonus. <laughs> Uh, but certainly, certainly something that I can associate with, you know, try to spend as much time outdoors as, as I can uh, and get into nature. I mean, Zahir and I, we've had some of our most productive discussions when we've been walking. I mean, it's not been necessarily in nature. It's been around the square mile, around around where the office is based. But we're down by the Thames and we'll walk along the Thames and, and chat about things that, are, you know, that are troubling us. And I, I, I rarely, I don't think we've ever come back from one of those conversations feeling uh well i think we always feel better uh, after having those conversations out in nature than if we were having it in a stuffy meeting room so um, yeah. very uh, you know great great advice there for sure um what what do you think your superpower is you know what what do you think makes people want to work with you above all others oh that's a really tough one um you know what i'd say probably humility um i like to think i'm approachable um there's no there's no barriers um with me certainly within the business anyone can come and sit with me uh talk through their problems in their personal life their work life and you know I'll try and help them uh, I'd like to think I'm quite a caring person sometimes I'm too caring and put too much trust in people and it's cost me in the past um whether it's in you know personal relationships or or, or work um but i always like to see the best in people and i'm a natural helper i, I see someone in a position and i go yeah i want to help you um and yeah i'd like to i like to help people more ultimately and if you wash back one of the main reasons why personally i want to have good financial success out of glendalk and i don't think that's a dirty thing to talk about is to give back whether it's through charities whether it's through events whether it's through helping people directly uh you know life's there and it's proven that the more you give to people the more you get back you know in, in personal growth so I'd, i don't think it's a superpower but it's more you know i'm a helper definitely um and i like to see people do well um and that gives me a big rush when i see someone win and i've helped them win you know i win so 
it's uh it's in a very powerful feeling that I, I have to say I feel very similarly I, I do like to help people out you know and, and I'm always and often very much enjoy helping people and get nothing in return for it I think that's the yeah you know it's you know it's a it's a gift that you know you 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 might be you know you feel like you're gi- you're not necessarily giving a gift there you're actually receiving something there that that, that people don't realize you um you touched on something there do you think we do you think in particular in the UK we should be more open to celebrating people's successes particularly financially i mean you can you know like in the states people they they love to celebrate people who are rich and successful um do you think that's something we should be more open to doing over here you know i think i think there shouldn't be any hate against success there shouldn't be any you know angst against it because when when someone is financially successful they put back into the economy, clearly they pay a lot of taxes, they pay a lot of stamp duty, they pay a lot of VAT, and, you know, it washes through to the whole economy. I'm not a massive believer in the whole trickle-down thing, but I believe, you know, you give back and that should be celebrated that people are in this country trying to plough things back into society. Um, but I think there are two types, you know, of, you know, rich. There's rich from the financial sense. There's, you know, oh, look, I've I've got this money to do this, do that, blah, blah, blah. Great. No one really cares about that. It's like, you know, some people don't really like that vulgar display of wealth. I don't like it. It's like, keep it to yourself. And then there's the rich, you know, in personality and in in yourself. And, you know, I'm going to sound a bit like self-help guru here, but it's the latter which gives you that, that biggest feeling. Money and wealth doesn't necessarily make you happy. It gives you opportunities, opportunities to be happy. But in reality, some of the most miserable people I know are some of the wealthiest. <laughs> in fact, the most miserable, he's a, he's a billionaire and he has a very tough life. I say that, but he doesn't really seem to enjoy it, which is an odd thing to say. So for me, celebrating richness is about the richness of, you know, your quality of character, your life in terms of your happiness, your mental health, your family, your friends, your loved ones. But I think you also, you can't not celebrate the financial success that helps everybody else out in the economy and I say helps out it just you know provides the taxation for the government to go and spend on absolute rubbish like they do um so no there's two sides of it but for me the most important side is that personal richness um of uh, of how you feel and what you can give back and uh as opposed to celebrating pure oh look how much money I made it's like well no let's look at what you've done and the good you're doing because to me that means more than a guy that's got rolling around going look how much money I've got because quite frankly it's pretty vulgar that you know I I I find uh, there's not a lot there I can argue with um look I'd probably go a step further and say look I'm not going to stand here and start trumpeting the the virtues of the the guy that's a bit vulgar being you know that's made his money and, and behaves in a vulgar way but um I'd also be quite happy to it's a hill I'd die on to to allow them to do that um, mm. ra- rather than uh, I, I certainly don't subscribe to the all billionaires are evil uh, sadly I am not one but um, if someone wishes to be and, and I'm not sure I wish to be one but if someone does wish to be one I, I don't want to stand in their way uh, if, if that's something that they want to uh, want to aspire to mm. um, in terms of you know you mentioned you mentioned the birth of your son um, you know which people or past events give you the motivation to succeed to succeed I think you sort of alluded to it that you know that 
your son and your wife, I'm sure, are, are part of that journey. But were there any particular events that have that were a bit of a spark for you? Um, you know, aside from that. Yeah, um, I always think about this. But there was one time when I was uh, about 13. Now younger than I must have been younger than that. Must have been like 11ish. And I was at a friend's house, and we were on uh, a motocross bike going around his garden. Um, I love motorbikes, so that's always stuck with me. Um, but his dad was there, and his dad um, had a business, and he went bankrupt, and then set up another business doing camping equipment. And I'll come back to that in a second. And he, I said to the, said to him at the time, and he was doing a bit of property. I said, "Oh, how can I be a property developer?" And he goes, "Well," and he literally said this. He goes, "Well, you just do it." <laughs> and I was like, "All oh, right, that sounds quite straightforward." And he was. He was, and he's still around the guy. He's heavily dyslexic, openly. And uh, he said, well, you just go and do it. And that always stuck with me. And that guy went on to, uh, he founded uh, a retail chain called Go Outdoors. And he ended up selling that to JD Sports, I think, four years ago for 185 million, a chap called Paul Kaplan. And I think when I was with Paul that day, this was before Go Outdoors, and he just bought his first camping shop for like 80 grand. And he said to me, just do it. And I was like, that is brilliant. And also, I suppose, where the reason he bought that first camping shop was he went out to find a tent to go camping with his son and he couldn't find a shop that did it. And then when he found a shop that could do it, he bought it. And uh, it, that was very much probably his same ethos of just do it. And um, Paul's done a really good couple of YouTube interviews in the past. Uh, yeah, Paul Kaplan, look him up. But he's a wonderful guy. And I think being around him, at an early age when he was just starting out I could see his fire and his passion and uh yeah he was great so that was a that was something I always go back to but then also my own father he um he's always been an inspiration to me uh dad had dad was a uh, a water engineer for the water board up in up in Lincolnshire my mum was from Grimsby dad was from Scunthorpe and uh, and I've lost the accent luckily <laughs> um but even dad he started his own business selling compressors to garages going around bolting a, a compressor to an engine uh that can pump car tires up at petrol stations so he had his own business successful business and he started out from scratch so the and he did that with my mum and the, the the you know the, the drive and the determination that he had to build something up over 30 years um you know infected me and uh, and made me think well how can I do it and uh Certainly there. Dad's been a, and mum have been a huge inspiration in my life. And, and even now in their, in their 80s, their, um, you know, their positivity and happiness and passion just uh, I try and absorb from every day. So, yeah, a couple of or two, three people there that have certainly affected my life and, and moments in my life where I've thought, you know, yeah, let's push on. There's something good there. That's uh, that's awesome. I think some some great takeaways there. Uh, I think clearly. As we both know, surround yourself with good people, and you've clearly surrounded yourself with with excellent people, and not just the people you've mentioned as well. And they obviously, give you inspiration and you know and drive you on. Um, obviously, you and I have known each other for for a while now, and we, we get on quite well. We know some some of our other colleagues in the industry, other leaders, uh, have, we don't always have uh, don't always see eye to eye with. Um, what what are some what are some of the misconceptions that people might have about you? Because I'm sure that I'm sure that some of the people that you and I don't always get on with, uh, they they might make assumptions around us that uh, that aren't quite right, and that feeds into their, their perceptions of us. What what are those misconceptions as far as you're concerned that that people think that you're one thing and you're actually something else? 
That's a good one. I think, you know, there's some, there's two or three people out there that we both know well that, you know, they've got those misconceptions in their head and they're completely wrong and they're not willing to change their mindset. They're just very angry individuals and uh, have a general hate of anyone new coming into the market, um, which is the inverse of how you've operated with our friendship in the past and the inverse of how many other lender friends are. So there's some there that, that don't change. But I think from a, from a misconception perspective, I think, uh, I suppose it's a weird one. It's a bit odd, actually. When people meet me, they go, oh, I didn't expect you to be tall. I thought you were short. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had that a few times recently. I, I, get, I get that as well, funny enough. Yeah. yeah. They're like, oh, I thought you were a bit short. Maybe, maybe I do because I'm sat down in my chair. But um, yeah, they, they, they would think I'm short. But I think also just how, um, yeah, I don't, it's a bit of fun the right way to say it. Also just how open I am about things. Um, there's not much I won't talk about. Clearly, sensitivities within the business, or certain things I won't. But just uh, how I'm happy to chat and how I'm happy to, you know, shoot the breeze about lending, about personal life. And um, yeah, nothing's off the table, really. And I think I've had some people meet me and think, oh, well, this is not the, you know, the guy I might come across on LinkedIn sometimes. I, I try and come across as a little bit, you know, humorous, jokey. I don't take life too seriously. Um, but I think sometimes they think, oh, yeah, you know what? Well, I'd like to think they think this. Um, I'll go for a bit with that guy. He sounds, uh, he, he's quite fun. So, yeah, I think there's a couple of things there, but I think those misconceptions are from two or three people that have just got a, an absolute hate for what we do. And you know what? I admire the businesses they've built. I admire them as people. Um, and I don't hate them at all. You know, I find them frustrating because sometimes they just spread absolute rubbish about us um, and other lenders in the market. But hey, that's their game. That's what they do. And I'll just stay in my, my lane and um, and keep going. But they can have their misconceptions and uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do me. They do them. I'm sure one day Guy will win them over. Uh, you know. <laughs> so, I th- I was going to talk about the key personal values, but I think we've we've probably covered a lot of that. Um, but would like to talk about hobbies and things that you like to do outside of work. Um, you know, how, how, when you're not working, obviously you, you work very hard and built a very successful business. But how do you like to spend your time out, outside of work? Um, what sort of hobbies do you do you like to engage in? Um, I'm a big uh, motorbike fan um, so um, I go on motorbike trips at the weekend go down into leave London and go Sussex Surrey Berkshire go on a big tour down there uh, so absolutely love doing that just the open road clear head can't check your phone can't really think about anything else when you're on a motorbike otherwise if you do you're gonna have an accident um, so very much enjoy doing that um, I try to do, you know, a bit of reading. Um, you know, it sounds like a dating ad, but I enjoy eating out and I enjoy food. I absolutely love cooking. Uh, I'll make random things at home. I'll get recipe cards and try and create it. Usually cock it up, but uh, I'll always be adventurous and try something. I just feel the process of creating something in the kitchen is almost like creating a mini business. You've got to get all these things together, create it, and then you get to have the end result. It's quite a, quite a nice reward, rewarding feeling um clearly a passion for property uh, a general passion i'm trawling through right move constantly not to look at buying stuff necessarily but just out of interest and uh, go oh that's nice that's nice i wonder what you could do with that wonder what the opportunity is there or that's a nice home i like what they've done and yeah i must be one of right moves heaviest users i think uh, <laughs> and, I, um, I can I'm, I'm i can guarantee you you've got some competition there <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, I suppose, you know, with hobbies, uh, well, I suppose aviation, um, I've got a model Cargo Lux Boeing 747, 
uh, F400 here. Don't ask me why. I just absolutely love planes. Um, and I just love seeing them go through the air. And one day I'd love to have an aviation business. Uh, so anything when it comes to, you know, planes, model planes, model helicopters, model cars. Um, I'm a bit of a geek, really. Um, you know, I just I just like the little simple things, not the expensive hobbies, but, you know, things that just make me happy. Um, and I'd say I've been there in life and been fortunate enough to have some nice things, you know, some nice, a nice car, or whatever. And part of me now, maybe I'm getting old is just, you know, I, I'm trimming back on life on, you know, and cutting back to the core things that make you happy. I don't need fancy things to make my life amazing. It's, um, you know, you just need people and a model plane and I'm happy. <laughs> so yeah, that's my, that's my, that's my hobbies off the top of my head. Um, obviously along with the walking and getting outdoors and, uh, and being by the sea is, uh, is another passion of mine, uh, not necessarily on it, but near it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or even if that sea is, uh, is, is probably about three degrees in, in Northwest Scotland, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's cold. Actually, my background here is on the screen is, is on the sea of Scotland and, uh, yeah, you might not necessarily want to go in it without a dry suit on, but, um, you know, whether it's surfing or um, mainly in Devon, the surfing, uh, anything when you need the sea, I just think it's good for the soul. You know, it cleanses you. It's good. We're, we're, we're creatures from water originally, if you believe uh, evolution, which, uh, yeah, I do. So, uh, yeah, um, that's a quick rundown. Uh, well, apparently, apparently I discovered last week that you that there is something something about being near the sea or near the water, that the air, something to do with the ionisation of the air uh, means that you. Uh, you actually do get genuine benefits from from spending prolonged periods of time by the sea so there's probably something there's probably something to that as to why you feel that way and i don't I, you're probably not alone with, in that either mm. um yeah. is how's how does your how does your wife feel about you being on the motorbike now that you're a dad uh <laughs> is, is, she, is she insisting that you put some stabilizers on that motorbike you know, yeah so not far well, her, uh, my father-in-law, he's he's got a garage full of old motorbikes in various states of repair, and most of them don't work, um, ranging from old Holly Davidsons to Triumphs and Nortons and, and various things. So, he he he's he's really supportive, and she's got great videos on her phone of when she was like six years old on the back of a motocross bike with her slightly older brother riding it around the garden with no helmet on or anything. And so she she was a bit of a wild child. <laughs> she she still is. And being Scottish, I think they're all just a little bit nuts. Um, so, no, I think, you know, the passion's always been in the family. And it's more my mother-in-law that uh, she's like, oh, you're going to get yourself killed on that. And she's very much, you know, I shouldn't be. However, bikes these days, touch wood, they've got, you know, auto braking systems. When it sees a car pulling out, it will brake for you. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of sensitivity and stability systems on these modern bikes. So, yeah, she wasn't a huge fan of it, but she, she likes it. It's my hobby. gets me out of the house, gets me away from nagging here and making a mess. So, uh, yeah, I think she actually quite enjoys it now. But she okay. won't get on the back of it, I don't think. <laughs> has, have there been any, has, has there been much from your hobbies or, or interests outside of work that you've been able to apply to the business life or to your work? Oh, that's a good one. Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I don't think there's much that's really crossed over, uh, apart from having a model plane sat on my desk. Uh, there's not really, you know, there, there probably is bits and pieces here and there. But um, actually, you know, you know what? There is one big thing. I'm I'm building a, my own home in Scotland at the moment on the sea, which is uh, funny. We spoke about that, and. 
I was trying to take out a self-built mortgage to do it. And every place I went to, uh, I couldn't find anywhere good. All the building societies were clunky, slow, didn't get it. They got back to me two weeks later. And I thought there needs to be someone that can do self-built mortgages. So I thought, why don't we do a self-built mortgage in here? So we're actually working on that at the moment with Michael, commercial director and funders to offer a, a homeowner self-built product, but a complete suite product, not like a, a bridge, but end-to-end homeowner product. I mean, it's a big old task, but I'd like to do it. And that's from a personal life, a frustration that I felt and something I brought into work, which actually we think there's an opportunity there. It's not the massive market. It's not, you know, bridging volume market. However, it's a market I think we can create something that can be a gateway for other products in the future. So, yeah, there's a, there's an example of I found a problem in my personal life and I thought, well, let's drop this into into work and see if it works. And, you know, you've got to be very careful doing that passion passion and making a profit over something are two you know very hard scales to to balance so um yeah hopefully we can create something there that uh, that works in the market and suddenly i can't borrow off ourselves due to restrictions but a product that i would use if i could use it well there you go scratching your own itch again um <laughs> okay so we we talked about the we talked about the the art of uh, forest bathing as as one of the books that you mentioned Presumably, presumably, there are probably one other book that's probably had a, a, a more profound impact on your life. You know, in, as someone who likes to do a lot of reading, what, what would you say is the number one book that you that you would recommend above all others for, for, for those that are listening? Well, I try and do a lot of reading, but as my wife gets extremely annoyed at me about every few days, a book arrives from Amazon and she gets angry and says, jokingly angry, like, stop buying more books. You've got to read all these ones first. Um, but yeah, The Forest Basin is a quick one to read. And I think the be- one of the best I've ever read is Shoe Dog uh, by Phil Knight um, about how he started uh, Nike and uh, his story and journey. And again, it all comes down to that resilience and him starting that business and all the hell he went through with the suppliers pulling the rug on him, branding issues, name issues, logo issues, supplier issues. Yeah, he went through absolute hell to build that business. But you look at him now and he's one of the world's wealthiest men and you think, oh, well, he's he's had a good run. And you're like, well, he has. Like, it's an awesome story behind that. So, so that was good. And then I've got a couple down here. Um, you know, how to talk to anyone. And uh, this is a good one: winning now and winning later. Uh, a really good book by David Coates, and it's all about growing your business in the short term, and then also thinking about the business in the long term. So, getting wins on both ends. Don't think about tomorrow. Just think about five years time. Mm. And um, yeah, they're, they're a few books that have been pretty, I wouldn't say transformational, it's cheesy, but you know, I remember them, I remember the key points about them, and I try and apply it to um, to being in, in life day to day. So it's funny you mentioned Shoe Dog, because before the book that I'm currently reading, which is uh, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, uh, which is a really, uh, really vo- voluminous tome, uh, which I'm about halfway through is, is is the book itself is a thousand pages in very wow. tiny typeface so thankfully i'm listening to it on, on an audio book and that's 48 hours worth of of listening i've got about wow. <laughs> i've got about 20 i've got about 24 hours left so i'll probably be finished it in about four weeks but right. I, the one before that i listened to was shoe dog and it's one of those. If if it was a book, I wouldn't. It's one of those books that I wouldn't have been able to put down. But as a as an audio book, if I was listening to it in the car, I'd sit in the car and listen to it for 15 minutes after I'd arrived home because that part of the story was just so exciting, so compelling. 
and it's funny that I, I I think there's there's definitely elements of you, you of Phil Knight about you the 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 kind of just get on and do it uh the gray hair maybe uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh well I'm, I'm not it's not coming up on the screen so yeah you've given yourself away there but yeah i i have to say i loved i loved the story i loved the fact that the, the guy just he, he people people just think that you can just build a, a multi-billion pound multi-billion dollar company overnight and even in Phil Knight's case, when he started the business in what, 1964, uh, when it was called whatever, when it was whatever it was called, Blue Ribbon. And then 10 years, 10 years later, when he had millions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of sales, he was still putting out fires. He still had, you know, he was he was he always felt like he was never more than a, a month away from closing down at any one time, even then. And it was just. It, you know and you're just going how how did the guy how did the guy just survive because mm. so many people have just thrown in the towel and he just just kept going and kept going and kept going the resilience of the man is just ridiculous um so yeah for me it's it's definitely in the top five books from a business perspective because if you don't get inspired by that book then nothing will inspire you it's gonna get you going yeah. <laughs> um right last question guy um yeah. we've got an audience of aspiring entrepreneurs, many of whom want to be entrepreneurs in the property space, but may not necessarily be property entrepreneurs. They may be entrepreneurs in different sectors. Hmm. What what piece of advice would you like to leave the listeners with? Uh, you know, what, what sort of business or life hack would you like to share with, with our listeners um, as, as you leave us? Yeah, you know, I think it comes back to that point about Phil Knight. It's... Um, it's about being not not get, letting the setbacks get to you. It's it's realizing that those setbacks that you'll have, whether it's you know trying to arrange a meeting with someone to do a deal, trying to get your career started, trying to get your dream job, no matter what happens, just try and brush it off. It's really easy said than done, and I struggle with it sometimes. But you know it's really important to have that resilience and that grit, that pure you know. I'm going to crack on with this. I mean, there's a fine line between resilience, grit and arrogance, but you have to have that self-belief that one day it's all going to work out. And it does. It really does. And yes, you're going to have setbacks along the way, but take that risk, take that opportunity, email that person you want to have a coffee with, call that person directly you want to speak to. And I mean, I've had some great people reach out to me through LinkedIn and say, Guy, can I just have a coffee with you? I've got an idea. And I'll meet them and it might be nothing to do with property and I'll give them some of my time and, you know, we'll have a great conversation. And I don't want to have a flurry of people flood my inbox, but it's I like to keep myself open like that and like to help people out. And that comes to the giving part. But it's um, it, it take that risk, take that opportunity and you never know what will happen, because if you don't take that risk, you'll forever wonder when you're on your deathbed one day. Oh, why didn't I call that guy? Why didn't I push for that job? Why didn't I take that opportunity? Some will work, some won't. So have grit, have resilience, and just keep going. That will be my uh, my uh, my ending line. And it's also they have have to know that everyone goes through this. You, no matter if myself, you, Michael, or a couple of people I know who are some of the wealthiest people in the country, they they all have their problems and they all have crap every single day. And the irony is the more they've elevated themselves, the more crap they have. And 
sometimes you don't want that in your life <laughs> but you've just got to get through it no no amount of money will remove that crap so you've got to start dealing with it and just be resilient and move on that's my uh, my life hack yeah no, no matter how successful you are you're always going to have problems problem just in fact uh, problems your, your problems just get bigger and more complicated as you become more successful so so, so yeah. get used to it and enjoy it yeah um guy harrington it's been a pleasure thank you very much thank you for your time and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon thanks for having me michael been great a big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the property funder podcast avonmore capital a property bridging and development lender located here in london They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.